When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Peoples and Things, a podcast about human life with technology. I'm your host, Lee Vinsel, an associate professor of science, technology, and society at Virginia Tech. You can reach me with comments and suggestions at leevinsel at gmail.com or on Twitter at STS underscore news. I would love to hear from you. Disney movie Zootopia, there's a scene where the two main protagonists need to find some information, and their trail takes them to the Department of Mammal Vehicles, or DMV. There they find that the clerks of the DMV are, in fact, sloths. This is played for laughs. Now, some people thought that this scene was kind of racist, like, who are these sloths supposed to represent? But I saw it more as a commentary on our everyday experience with inefficient bureaucracies in our society, which actual DMVs are cast as the greatest example of in our culture. DMVs started from a reasonable place. You don't want just anyone driving on the road, but somehow have become stifling dens of boredom and frustration. Or take another example. University presidents apparently love nothing more than adding new vice provosts of nonsensical BS. It's their favorite thing. And over the past 30 or so years, universities have grown whole new layers of managers and offices. Indeed, some argue that this new layer in universities was one of the primary drivers of rising tuition costs over the past few decades. Now, some of these new offices deal with morally important things like disability, like sexual assault and sexism, like racial diversity. But this is how we deal with deep problems in our society, by multiplying layers of bureaucracy and technology and proliferating new types of expertise and credentials. We do this so much that some believe these tools of organization themselves become a problem. And how do we fix those problems? Well, with more tools, which create more problems, to which the answer is more tools, which you get the picture. Perhaps no one wrote about this characteristic of society with as much passion and insight as the Catholic priest, philosopher, and social critic Ivan Illich. This episode on Illich is different than any episode we've done before. Illich died in 2002, so I do not interview him. Instead, I interview someone who knows a lot about him. 
My guest's pen name is L.M. Sakasas. He goes by Michael, and he is the associate director of the Christian Study Center at Gainesville, Florida, and author of The Convivial Society, a newsletter on Substack about technology and society. We talk about Illich's work, how Michael and others find Illich useful for thinking about our present moment, and also some of Michael's writings about Illich and various technological topics. It's a far-ranging conversation, and it was a pleasure to record. I hope you enjoy it. Get excited. Michael, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. I should probably also tell listeners that you were recently a guest on the Ezra Klein podcast, so they should check that out. And congratulations uh, on that that uh, opportunity. Thank you very much. Yeah, as I joked on Twitter, it's amazing who they'll let on the show these days. <laughs> I appreciate and, yeah. the humility. Um, <laughs> if you had to explain Illich's uh, book, tools for conviviality to someone unfamiliar with it, which is something you've you've done often in a number of venues. What do you tell people? How do you start them off? That's a great question. Um, it, it's a dense book and it's kind of woven into, you know, Illich's whole sort of intellectual development. But I'd say that tools specifically is, is probably the book where you get uh, the most kind of condensed vision uh, from Illich for what um, a good technosocial configuration might be, right? So um, he's exploring the kinds of tools that in his mind will, will lead, lead not only to a just society, but a good society. Um, and chiefly, I think what he's interested in in that, in that book is um, recognizing and then prompting us to ask where are the appropriate limits that we need to set to the scale and purposes that we give to our tools. And I should say, too, that um, Illich uses the word tools very expansively in this book, right? So he means mm -hmm. to include by it um, not only what we think of as technologies, uh, but also things like cultural institutions. So education, medicine, transportation, mm -hmm. Uh, these are kind of cultural tools that Illich means also to to analyze here. And in, in his view, um, one of the things that, that I think he is really interested in here is understanding that there is some threshold that varies, that can be um, ascertained in a, in a variety of different ways, but that upon crossing certain, these thresholds, institutions or technologies become counterproductive. And so he, he opposes, mm -hmm. on the one hand, in industrial-scale tools, which in his view, you know, all these tools and institutions have kind of crossed over that threshold into counterproductivity uh, to what he calls convivial tools, which is what gives the book um, its, names and its name. And so that's, uh, in some respects, the gist of what his project is in, in that book. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe it would help. We could talk a bit about like these two. His notion of the two watersheds. So, like, yeah. what's mm -hmm. his image of the problem? It seems to be that we introduce tools for good reasons, mm -hmm. right, to deal with problems. Right. But then somehow, like, the problems become or the the tools becomes problems in them themselves. So, right. 
What is his image for how that process works? Yeah. So the two watersheds that he discusses at the outset of Tools for Conviviality, um, he takes medicine as his sort of case study for this early example. And, and he's going to go on later in a few years to write a book uh, that was first called Medical Nemesis, and today is usually uh, published as Limits to Medicine, which the book itself is devoted to, to medicine as a, uh, an institution and how it has crossed that, that threshold. But in this book, he gives a little sketch of that. In Tools, he gives a sketch of that uh, process. So the first threshold, he dates it, I, I forget, it's early 19, um, early 20th century, uh, 1913 or something like that. And the first yeah. watershed is where medicine becomes sort of actually useful, right? Where you can go to a doctor and actually expect to have a, a better than 50% chance of, of getting a, a good treatment, of your health being improved, uh, of having what we might think of as a positive outcome. And then the second watershed, in his view, happens later, mid-20th century. Um, I forget the dates in the 1950s or, or 60s. Um, but at this point, it, the, the gains are, in some cases, the, the rate of gain is slowed. And in fact, you, you may have both individuals with physical ill effects from treatment, and then there are also... Uh, cultural effects that result from an overdependence on the institution of medicine um, and mm. the professionalization of medicine. And one of the mm -hmm. so one of the things that's really interesting about Illich is that you know there are many critics of industrial society. Few of them take aim at education and medicine, which are generally seen to be uh, seen to right. be the most benign um, you know institutions of, of modern society. Mm -hmm. um, part of what Illich is concerned with. And I don't, I don't know that this comes across um, in the popular image of Illich, um, such as there is one, uh, is that he, he really prizes people's capacity to care for themselves and, and for each other, for their communities. Yeah. And so part of what he thinks is happening in medicine and education, for example, is that we are, we are outsourcing our native capacities for care to a professional class that then sort of defines for us, not only comes alongside mm. us and helps us uh, achieve education and health on our own terms, but defines for us what education and health are. And that's part of the, um, mm -hmm. the counterproductivity in Illich's mind. It's when the individual or the community loses a, a measure of autonomy with respect to defining mm -hmm. for itself or themselves what their ends are and are on the other hand, forced to conform to institutionally defined ends, and and so subject them, mm -hmm. subject themselves to, you know, what <laughs> institutionalized medicine says health is, or what, um, you know, what counts for being um, educated in a society where you know that usually yeah. is reduced to the outputs of the educational institutions. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a. It, I I think what happened with education since he died is like, especially in the states, would be he would be even more horrified, right, with the way uh, we become so obsessed with testing and national standards and all these kinds of things, which seem to be exactly the kinds of worries that he had. Right, and I think it it demonstrates another um, uh, kind of recurring motif in tools for conviviality and and deschooling society, which came out a couple of years before it. And, and that's the idea of escalation, that in, in an industrial society mm -hmm. that is operating by the dynamics that he's trying to analyze, the only way to make the only the only way people think of making things better is simply by escalating 
that is by having more of right. the same, right? Um, and so the idea is always, you know, add another layer of testing, another bureaucratic layer of assessment, um, you know, make education ever an ever more expansive part of, you know, the, a, a child's life, say, right? So there's a lot of pushback of late. And I should say, I was an educator for 20 years. I mean, the majority of my life, I think of myself as, you know, um, um, a teacher. I've, I've taught high school, I've taught uh, in the undergraduate level. I still do teaching in this setting. Um, so, you know, I, I have some some experience with this, right? We we are trying to maximize the outputs of the institution um, by simply doing more of the same, adding layers, of, as I suggested, yeah. certification. And I was about to say just that the pushback, for example, um, on the amount of homework that is assigned in schools, right? So that you you not only send yeah. a child to school for, you know, five, six, seven, eight hours a day, but then their evenings are colonized by the same work. And so all that the institution knows to do is to give more of itself in the same way, in the same manner, rather than questioning some more mm -hmm. fundamental dynamics of the whole social cultural process and the place we've granted to that institution socially. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, maybe we can go, I mean, in STS, I think we tend to talk about it as like solving the problems of technology with more technology, yeah. which is how you've put it in, in some ways, have you written about it? And also comes through in, in his book. Um, before, I, I want to ask you some other questions about Illich mm -hmm. and who he was, but before we go on, maybe we should say like, all right, escalation is the kind of, is what he's saying. It's a crisis by escalation. Like we're trying to solve problem, the problems that come from our tools with the same kind of tools mm -hmm. over and over again. And it just gets bigger. There's more and more growth. But then what is his kind of utopian vision of conviviality? Like what is, what is, what does he think the answer in our lives and in society is to that move? So I'll take the example of, of education. Um, in, in the case of education, the, the idea is that his, his, so his, his title of the book is De-Schooling Society, a title he did not choose. The argument is actually that, that schooling be disestablished, and he's consciously borrowing from the language mm -hmm. of disestablishment of religion in the American tradition. And so it's not that he's against schools per se, but that we've assigned them a cultural role that, in his view, has become deeply mm. problematic, right? That it, it has achieved what in Tools for Conviviality um, he calls a, um, a radical monopoly, right? So if we think of mm -hmm. learning, right, uh, as the general category that schools are meant to serve, right? If, if learning is the end that, that, that education is, is meant to serve, what has happened in his view is that all manner of all forms of learning, many forms of learning, have been eclipsed by simply what happens in the classroom with a certified teacher, and so you've displaced yeah. avenues of learning that happen um, in all sorts of different settings, whether it's in the home, in the workplace, amongst friends, mm -hmm. in communities of um, you know of, of, of mutually interested amateurs in a particular subject. And so he, yeah. I think his ideal in the case of education would be not to abolish schools, right, but to grant a full range of possibilities for, for learning and give them a kind of equal footing in society's eyes. In, in the, and so that, you know, one of the mm -hmm. concrete, uh, but, you know, in many respects, idealistic proposals, um, I don't think he had any illusions about it being adopted, uh, was that 
it should be illegal for employers to discriminate based on the degree that the the kind of college degree or educational certification that a, that a, an applicant yeah. had, right? To require a high school diploma or, or an undergraduate degree, regardless of whether that degree had anything to do, right, with the job being applied right. for, that was in some respects a symptom of of the problem uh, for Illich, and so mm -hmm. that's one. You know, it, it always kind of comes back to the question of of, of empowering individuals and communities as far as possible and to retain mm -hmm. um, a degree of autonomy. So when the, when the tool, whether it's an institution or a technology, starts to set the terms on which a user much, must use them and engage with them, then it was time for, for some limits to be recognized, right? For some way of rearranging that relationship. And I will say that Illich recognized um, by the late 1970s that his approach in tools for conviviality fell short because he, he, he failed to understand, in his view, the way in which what he at the time called cybernetics was changing the nature of our tools. And he thought that that had already been happening when he wrote tools, but he just wasn't aware of it. Um, and so he would have said, I think, um, he would have taken a, a different approach, even though I think his ideals remain the same, but, but I think he would have seen his problem in more... Um, we've seen that the issue he was trying to tackle had more complex dimensions than he recognized, uh, even hmm. in tools for conviviality. Um, because of the technological change? Because of the shift of, and, and he didn't write very much about this, but what, what it seems to be okay. the shift in his view is that we move from tools to systems. This is the way he described it. And mm -hmm. so the, the, I think one of the clearest indications of what he gives, um, that he gives by, to what he means by this is that when he thought of a tool in the context of tools for conviviality, he was still imagining uh, that the, the person or the community, the political community, can sort of stand, have a distance from the tool in such a way that it can manage mm. and control the tool. A system incorporates mm -hmm. the user, the community, in such a way that that distinction between uh, the subject and the object, if you like, right, the, the tool and the person or the tool and the community becomes much more blurry um, and much more difficult to, to mm -hmm. just parse out. So he feels that the, the nature of systems, uh, certainly by the mid-20th century and then certainly on into the computer age, um, it makes the task much more difficult and required a, a rethinking of, of the terms of engagement, so to speak. Um, mm -hmm. and, yeah, and, and he goes on even later. There are other ways in which he rethinks his earlier work. Um, much of his, his work after this period of, um, of intellectual activism in the 1970s focuses on the question of, of, of the deeper assumptions that he failed to recognize that were driving some of the patterns that he identified mm. in his books like Tools and, uh, and De-Schooling and, and Limits for Medicine. And so he, he returns back to his, he was a historian by training. He did his, he did his PhD at Salzburg in history. Um, and, and he returns back to that, that mode mm. to try to excavate a lot of the cultural assumptions um, that in his view were you know, centuries in the making that were feeding into the, mm -hmm. the dynamics that he was analyzing on the surface of, of society in 1970, in the 1970s. Interesting. Hmm. Um, who was Illich and where did uh, tools fit in into his kind of career arc? You've already kind of talked about the later yeah. shift away, but who was he? Like, you know, what was his training? What was he doing? 
That's a great question. Illich was, um, so he was born in Austria. He is the, the son of a Sephardic Jewish mother and a, on his father's side, he, he descended from um, Croatian nobility. Um, his, his grandfather at the time of his birth still lived on an island uh, estate off the coast of uh, the province of Dalmatia in modern day Croatia than Yugoslavia, uh, where, uh, you know, there were elements of that estate that were still run as they were run in the 1300s. Uh, so there's you know, this wow. deep ancestral heritage on one side. He, he thought of himself, um, he often referred to himself as a, as a wandering Jew and a, and a Christian pilgrim. He had, because he did, um, his, his life was, um, characterized by, by exile and mobility, uh, in part because of his Jewish ancestry. Uh, during the middle 20th century, uh, he moved from Austria to Croatia, had to flee what was then Yugoslavia because of rising anti-Semitism, um, back to Austria, and then from Austria in the 1930s to, to Italy, where he um, was a student in Florence for many years. He trained for the uh, Catholic priesthood. In fact, he was ordained the priest uh, during that period before going to the University of Salzburg to do his PhD in history. Um, and, and he remained a priest throughout his life, although he famously uh, fell out with the hierarchy of the Catholic Church over a variety of issues in the 19, um, late mm -hmm. 50s and, and early 60s, to the point where he essentially agreed to stop um, functioning in his public, in his, in public, in his role as a priest, um, as he was really identified as okay. such. Um, so he has a, you know, kind of religious and, and theological background. Um, he came to the States actually in the late fifties to study at Harvard to do postdoctoral work in, in medieval philosophy, starting the, studying the work of Albert the Great. And he wasn't here very long before he visited a friend in New York and uh, witnessed sort of the, the plight of recent, a recent wave of Puerto Rican immigrants uh, and the difficulty they were having assimilating hmm. to American culture. And so he asked for an assignment in a local parish, he, and then he worked there essentially um, on behalf of the Puerto Rican community. Uh, he was very popular in, in that work, um, was then you know, sent to Puerto Rico, where he was uh, a chancellor at, at the uh, Catholic University there and put in charge of the public school system, or had a role in, in leading the public school system in Puerto mm. Rico at the time. And that's where his interest in schooling kind of takes off. And from that point on, he is where his troubles with the church begin. He then leaves Puerto Rico and essentially works as an independent scholar at um, the Center for International Documentation, CDOC. Um, it's hard to describe what CDOC is. I think there are very few contemporary analogs. Um, it was a uh, a free university in some respects. People came there from all over the world mm -hmm. for courses and seminars. Uh, it was a gathering of radical scholars. Um, Paulo Fieri, uh, some of er early theorists of cybernetics were present uh, in the 1960s and 70s. Um, the anarchist Paul Goodman. There are a number of people that come and kind of stay there and and, uh, uh, and then that center goes on till about 1974 and it's during that period where Illich kind of becomes the, the public figure that he was for this brief period in the early and, and mid 70s um, so he he's many things a social critic a historian priest uh, activist um, you know he cared deeply for the plight of indigenous people a fierce critic of development ideology in the 60s during the Kennedy administration mm -hmm. um, 
and um, all the and then he becomes sort of an itinerant scholar from then on. Uh, after CDOC closes, uh, he the places where he teaches most often are Penn State University and um, a handful of universities in in Germany in Bremen specifically. And he passed away in 2002, um, leaving behind this legacy. And at that point, I think probably more or less a forgotten uh, figure in the mainstream, right? So he kind of bursts onto the scene in the 70s, yeah. he's packing auditoriums, traveling, giving lectures all over the place. Books are bestsellers. Um, but that um, probably that period of his life closes by 1980. Uh, so yeah, that's mm-hmm. a the briefest nutshell I can give you of who he was. Yeah. You know, very interesting figure. That was great. Uh, yeah, yeah, um, and uh, he was conversant in thirteen languages, at least thirteen languages. Uh, so really interesting guy uh, in many respects, and uh, you know, very unique insights. I think that that combination of influences and background allowed him to bring to to contemporary society. I feel like there's been a, a rediscovery of his work recently uh, in the last couple mm-hmm. of years. I've heard more people, many more people talk about him. So how, how did you redis- how did you find his work and yeah, as part of that rediscovery? Yeah, and I think that's right. I'll say, you know, I obviously no, uh, I've conducted no surveys or polls, but my sense is also that there has been a, a reawakening of interest in Illich. Um, my own initial introduction to Illich um, came at the recommendation of Alan Jacobs, who is a, an English scholar presently at, um, at Baylor University. And he wrote a blog post. I, I don't even remember. He was actually commenting on some book um, that had just come out about the history of the book, uh, history mm. of textuality. And uh, he wasn't very fond of it. And he said, you know, there are these other works that, that are much better. And one of them uh, was uh, In the Vineyard of the Text uh, by Ivan Illich. So mm. In the Vineyard of Text was Illich's last book, it's very different. If anybody just knows Illich from de-schooling and tools and, and limits medicine, um, In the Vineyard of Texas is a very different book published by the University of Chicago Press. It's a history of the changing, uh, the, the changing technologies around the text in the 12th century. Um, very fine-grained mm-hmm. and detailed. A look at the transition from monastic to scholastic readership, um, and so it's it's scholarly, it's heavily footnoted, it doesn't have the polemical tone that some of his early writing has. I found it a, uh, not only a, a you know really insightful, but also um, I, I always sort of stumble as to how to put this, but a kind of a morally serious book, um, and and a and a, yeah. and a beautiful book in a sense, and the care that he brought, the average, uh, you know obvious passion that he brought to the subject that was present in his writing in a way that wasn't in a lot of other scholarly writing. I was in graduate school at the time, uh, and and a lot of the other writing mm-hmm. I was reading didn't have this this added dimension that Illich brought. So that's what sort of introduced me to him. Huh. Um, you know, I went on from that point to, you know, to read Tools for Conviviality and, and not much else for a while. And it's been, I think, in the last five years or so uh, that, you know, I've become uh, increasingly interested in his work and, and found his work to be really useful in analyzing and framing many of our, our contemporary issues and um, contributing to the mm-hmm. Illich revival, such as there is one, yeah. <laughs> right on. Um, in one of your pieces, you, you write that um, Illich saw better than most the deep-rooted and ultimately theological sources of our disorders. So what, is, what do you mean by that? What, what do you, how, do you, how does theology come out in his view of these things? Man, so that's interesting. That's one of these cases where I want to go back and read the context of what I said. Um, the um, 
so I, I think there's a sense in which a good friend of Illich's, uh, another Roman Catholic priest that was probably his longest standing associate, Lee Hanukkah, um, he said that Illich was often doing theology in another key. Um, and I, I don't think he meant by that that one had to kind of apply esoteric readings to Illich, but um, yeah. but just the fact that a lot of the concerns that he was bringing to institutions like education, transportation, and medicine, he first intuited and applied those those critiques to the church itself, right? So he sees the the church as sort of the the model institution for Western modernity. Um, he has a much mm-hmm. later work, it, and it's actually not a book he writes. It's a book he, in a sense, dictates uh, to David Cayley. It's called Indiv- uh, not excuse me. It's called. Um, oh my goodness! I can't believe I'm blanking on the name. It'll come to me, but. Um, in this last yeah, no book, he um, he essentially details this theory of modernity as a corruption of the, of Christianity rather than a an outgrowth of mm. or a uh, rejection of or opposition to or reaction to. And what he means by that is that the the church becomes, in his view, uh, the first institution that makes itself. Uh, so dominant over an individual's life, the, the life of individuals that, mm. you know, has a kind of certified uh, professional class in the way that priesthood developed in late medieval Christianity. Um, you know, he, for example, you know, has this line where he talks about how um, it is in the church that hospitality is transformed into hospitalization. Um, the idea that uh, huh. a, a gift for caring for yeah. others that in early Christianity, you know, was widely distributed and in some respects was the duty of all individuals becomes institutionalized and one professional class will take care of it and everybody else is sort of um, disburdened from that responsibility to care for the yeah. other. So, so all that to say that he, the, the, the critiques that he applies to modern institutions were first applied in his mind to the church. And that isn't evident. Mm-hmm. Rivers North of the Future is the name of the book that I was, um, you know, forgot just a moment ago. But in it is in that work where that becomes explicit. Uh, although I think it was, you know, it was there for uh, for those to see. You know, there's a language of disestablishment, for example, in in tools or in, in de-schooling. Mm-hmm. Uh, he often talks about, um, you know, liturgies that that or and rituals, right? That that modern institutions create rituals and liturgies for their um, the, those who participate in their life, so that that kind of, kind of religiously intoned language um, is there throughout, um, and I think that's the the sense. And and I think with regards to sort of the deeper, the underlying, um, you know, critique, on the one hand, it has to do with the the nature of of the tools themselves. I think you know we we often imagine that the tools are indifferent. Well, and and I think you know as a historian of technology, right? The, the I think a lot of people sort of think tools are neutral, right? They can be put to good uses, bad uses, but what really matters is just the human agency, right? But I think Illich, like others, you know, were, were trying to say, look, you know, the, the tools can be used in different ways, but they also have a kind of logic of their own that can override um, the intentions of users, right? Or the intentions of the creators of the tools or the founders of the institutions. Um, and so he um, he wants to help us understand that there are these logics that are that are at work that colonize our way of thinking about different cultural problems political problems uh, and that in some cases the 
what we need to do is sort of re reject the tool or place limits on it rather than just assuming that you know, if, for example, I, I think of this in terms of how we think about Facebook in public discourse, right? The, the idea that if, if Facebook were, weren't a private company but publicly owned or if it were broken up or something, that that would sort of make the, the right. Facebook a benign <laughs> force, right? Um, but instead, yeah. I, th I think what Illich would say, it's like, no, this this is a tool that, that by its very nature, at its scale, given its, its, its logic, regardless of who operates it, even if you get Mark Zuckerberg out of the picture, um, is still going to generate problems uh, because of its yep. internal structures and scale. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you um, how he kind of fits into kind of broader 20th um, century kind of streams of thought. So the, I want to ask you one about kind of uh, other religious figures, but the one that has come up for me in our conversation so far is kind of critiques of bureaucracy that are around from like the 50s through the 70s. I mean, there's all kinds of people writing about the problems of bureaucracy, even like Joseph Schumpeter, the famous kind of Austrian economist, um, sees like the burdens of bureaucracy as like inducing all of these deep societal problems. And on the left and right, I mean, both the new left mm -hmm. kind of hippie types yep. and kind of conservative, um, you know, like the public opinion and these other, you know, kind of conservative critiques of bureaucracy you see in the 60s and 70s. So do you fit, think he kind of fits into that moment where people are seeing bureaucracies as as kind of having a logic of their own and, and leading to problems? Yeah, I think if, if you know, if we're drawing sort of Venn diagram-like, uh, you know, illustrations of this, uh, there's a there's an overlap uh, to some degree with those circles. Mm -hmm. I I think if, if we're placing him um, in some, you know, wider intellectual currents, that, you know, I think of, um, who's the author of Small is Beautiful? Schumacher, is it Schumacher? Uh, yeah, Schumacher, Schumacher right, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh, yeah. Um, you know, there, and, and, um, and there's an Austrian um, writer who right now, his name is escaping me, not part of, um, you know, the Austrian School of Economics, but Leon, Le uh, Leonard Cole maybe is the name. In any case, there, there are those who are focusing mm. on the scale of, of the institutions, yeah. um, you know, the scale of, of technology right. and, and how, well, there's an emphasis on, you know, um, the title of the book, right, Small is Beautiful, that, that there are scales appropriate to human activity in this world. And that when we right. break through those thresholds in Illich's uh, language or those limits, or we operate at those scales, um, we inevitably invite um, all sorts of negative consequences for human society, for individuals, and for the environment. Mm -hmm. And so in a sense, Illich, um, you know, Illich is read in the environmental movement. Um, you know, Illich is read in this mm -hmm. you know, 70s, you know, uh, movement where we're looking at, um, you know, the problem of scale in society. Um, it, it is interesting, the number of various types that kind of find something in Illich that attracts them, right? So he himself has often yeah. been called a libertarian, an anarchist, a socialist, um, right. a, a <laughs> radical, but he's, you know, then he says his radicalism is a function of his traditionalism, you know? Um, and, and so yeah. he frequently disappointed, um, either people on the right or people on the left that came to CDOC uh, thinking that mm. they were going to be validated in their own kind of understanding of the problem and the need for a solution. Mm. Um, and so he, he held intention a lot of different strands in a very unique way. Um, 
and that that didn't sit easily in any of the the ways that we you know kind of pigeonhole thinkers yep. or, or try to you know bracket thinkers. But he certainly had right. affinities with a variety of different uh, groups. He was read profitably, I think, by people on the new left at the time. Um, and so there were you know. Um, David Cayley and his intellectual biography of, of Illich that came out just last year, which is a gem, and, and anybody interested in Illich, I think that for years to come will be the starting place. Um, it's, it's called simply Ivan Illich, an intellectual biography. Um, he talks about the the discourse of the crisis of man. Uh, uh, Grief wrote mm-hmm. a, a book, that book was probably five years ago now, maybe a little longer, and he situates Illich he says Illich can very much fit into that, um, into that grouping where you yeah. might have people like Hannah Arendt um, and others. So there, there are a variety of ways of, of placing Illich in, in the intellectual currents of the 20th century. Um, but I think that the unique package of his upbringing, his training, the sources of his thought, uh, and his own sort of yeah. biographical experience, his own story, make his perspectives ultimately um, very different to fit neatly into any one of those streams. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that makes sense to me. I mean, the, the other stream I wanted to kind of ask you about was traditions of um, Catholic and Christian kind of cultural pessimism and kind of anti-modernity. So I was thinking about like French Catholic existentialists, uh, Jacques Ellul, yeah. My fr- my friend argues that Martin Heidegger is a you know basically a Catholic thinker when you kind of strip mm. away some of the layers, yeah. um, and there's lots of people you know in the 20th century who questioned modernity and I think mm-hmm. especially uh, science and technology mm-hmm. that these things kind of like really deliver on their promises mm-hmm. and and even that science and technology had kind of become a form of idea ide- idolatry mm-hmm. right so. Do you think he is that part of the background for him or is he, you know, is he reading those kinds of characters and responding to them or? Yeah, I'll start yeah. there. Yeah, great question. Jacques Ellul is definitely an influence. Uh, there's, um, in fact, in, in I think it's 1993, um, you can find this online. He, he, he delivers um, a tribute to Ellul at a at a small conference that was held in Ellul's honor late late in his life. And and he acknowledges Ellul as one of his great teachers. Um, he was a student of Jacques Maritain um, in the 1940s. And so there is huh. definitely... Well, there you go. Yep. Yeah, th- there's, a, there's a connection there. Um, I think what, what... When I think of, you know, somebody says, you know, sort of the... the Catholic traditions of, of, you know, critiques of modernity or anti, anti-modern thinking. Um, yeah. To me, that tends to suggest a kind of reactionary um, ideology mm-hmm. or, or obvious ways in which that right. can go south. I think it, it's important to say Illich was not a romantic. Um, and and he is very mm-hmm. explicit in in saying that he has no he has no desire to go backwards in time, right? So, so he's not pining mm-hmm. for a lost age. You know, he doesn't think the answers to just undo modernity. Um, in fact, in tools, uh, you know, he, he does write about a, a, a society, his ideal society, society is still very modern and, and even has a place for mm-hmm. industrial, for industrial technologies and industrial tools. Um, but has, you know, learned to put those in, in their place as it were, right? To, to, to figure out a way of working through them to achieve this idea of multiple balances um, in human society, that so that we're we're attentive not only to economic growth but to political health and social well-being and all of these other important measures and metrics. Um, so I don't think of him as a reactionary uh, 
figure and and, and yeah. as being anti-modern, um, but rather as being very specifically focused on the on the nature of certain industrial tools, the scale at which they operate, um, and and their what he thought would be their eventually destructive consequences, not only for society but for um, for the environment, right, for the natural world. Um, mm-hmm. So so yes, I guess the the my short answer is. I think there are definitely connections there, um, but I would want yeah. to, you know, frame his relationship to those thinkers carefully. Yep. Yeah. I hear you loud and clear. Yeah, yeah. I wanted it to, to kind of explore questions of like style and and what he's up to in the text, because um, mm-hmm. I think it'll help listeners to just kind of like get that on the table. Mm-hmm. So like I, I had a very kind of schizoid re- reaction to the text as a kind of my kind of philosophical and religious upbringing um, on one side, and then my life as a historian of technology and sociologist of mm-hmm. technology on the other. So mm-hmm. when he was when he writes on the section about kind of how medicine creates problems, and then there's like doctor-induced illnesses um, that then we use more medicine to um, to try to heal. Uh, he writes at the time of the second watershed is this moment where mm-hmm. we're creating illnesses and then responding to them. Preservation of the sick life of a medically dependent people in an unhealthy environment became the principal business of the medical profession. Now, I read this as like some I'm extremely skeptical about lots of aspects of modern medicine. Mm-hmm. I think we use all kinds of drugs that are basically not that show no efficacy, including right. many psychiatric drugs, for instance. Right. Um, I think the way we do end of life in our society mm-hmm. and the costs that come with that are absolutely mm-hmm. bonkers, right? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I can, I'm like very, very critical of the way medicine functions in our society, as are many of my friends, like the science journalist John Horgan, for instance. But like the idea that like responding to doctor created illnesses became the principal business of medicine, <laughs> I feel like is maybe a, a stretch. <laughs> so I just wonder, like, yeah. you know, like, uh, you know, it's like, so what, how do you think about that? I mean, he's making some really big generalizations. He doesn't really pr- pr- provide any evidence for these kinds of claims. Like, how, what do you think about what he's up to? And also, like, how does it fit with where he goes from, from there? Yeah. So I, I think my, the, the first thing I would say is, is that, um, if, if you're specifically interested in the questions of medicine that he raises in that o- the opening of Tools for Conviviality, then the thing to do is to follow up with Limits to Medicine, which is a much more well-documented, okay. well-argued um, exploration of these questions. And, and so yeah. I, I think that what he is up to in Tools for Conviviality and in Deschooling Society, there's, a, there's this moment, right? So he, he's writing at, at, a, at a point where radical change kind of seems feels possible right and so it's i think important to remember this mm-hmm. is in you know the flush of this period of you know the 60s which don't end in 1969 but but encapsulate the early 70s yeah. to some degree right um where there there is something in the air that suggests that we are at an inflection point right and that you know things can become radically different and i think illich is writing into that moment he he refers back to this period where he shoots off uh, de-schooling tools, energy and equity, his critique of the transportation industry, um, and limits to medicine in a period of four or five years. And, and he l- looks back at this period mm. and calls it his pamphleteering uh, phase. And I think what, okay. he, what he means <laughs> by that is he's, he's writing 
calls to action in some respects, right? He's writing not yep. quite manifestos, but but they have this um, urgency, this kind of prophetic quality to them. Um, and so they're yeah. there. And, and he, he does have um, certainly a way of writing um, that I think is intended to provoke. Right. Um, so there I think that's important to recognize um, and yeah. and to situate that work within the whole arc of, of Illich's, um, you know, and of course, who has the time to do this, right? But, you know, if you care to understand Illich, I think, you know, to right, take right. in the whole arc of that. And I think there's a lot yes. of, there's a lot of underlying work that doesn't get uh, explicitly cited or mentioned. Um, and he, in the preface, for example, mm-hmm. Tools for Conviviality, and I think this is true of really a lot of his work, it's the product of um, conversations, exchanges, seminars, uh, interactions with other scholars that, you know, happened at CDOC. And, you know, he even says, you know, many of the people who were my conversation partners will hear echoes of their ideas and their thoughts here. Um, and so there's a, a diverse set of, of disciplinary mm-hmm. perspectives that are underlying this, but it happened in conversation. And in some ways, Illich is producing a kind of, um, yeah, I don't like the word manifesto precisely, but um, uh, an urgent call to action, right? Um, that has a kind of mm. polemical thrust to it in some respects. Um, that is built upon all of those, but but all of that in its detail doesn't seep into the text um, in the way that you know yeah. we might expect by contemporary scholarly conventions. Right on. I mean, I think that makes sense, and it, it, I think it will help people um, if they approach the text and and have this initial resistance just to think about like what the genre is and yes. um, where it fits in his overall arc. Um, I wanted to ask you a bit about what you find useful in Illich uh, for thinking uh, today and also about what the people you've talked to about Illich are kind of what about his work is resonating with them today. But before I get there, I thought, could you tell um, listeners about the um, Christian Study Center of Gainesville and and your role there? Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. Um, So we're also kind of an odd institution. in the sense that um, we, we think of ourselves as serving the university community. Um, we were, um, so the kinds of things that we do, I think maybe is a good way of, uh, of talking about this. Mm-hmm. You know, we host lectures, yeah. uh, we run reading groups, uh, we have classes that um, undergraduates attend, but are not for credit, you know, are just, you know, uh, merely voluntary. Um, we see ourselves as a place uh, to, to foster conversations, uh, to you know, explore what we think of as sort of shared human questions. Um, we want to make this a space for conversation from people from a variety of religious uh, backgrounds and traditions. Uh, so we've had you know, Hindu, Islamic scholars come and, and present um, and lead group, or not lead groups, but you know, give lectures here, and also people from no religious background. Um, you know, essentially, mm-hmm. it's um, it's a it's a place that's kind of focused on um, expanding the kind of work that happens in the university, bringing in a diversity of voices into the kinds of questions that are raised. Um, you know, we um, mm-hmm. we've we've been here for about twenty years. There are a number of, of study centers like this that aren't always called study centers. I'm not always sure that that's the best word for what they you know for what they are. But uh, right. it's a loose network of thirty or so. Uh, th- maybe 30 to 40 similar institutions around the country, all, always situated in um, in 
in the vicinity of a university. So we're not in any way affiliated with the University of Florida, which is where I'm at in Gainesville. Right. Um, but that certainly is the, the community that the center seeks to to serve. Um, and then another way we've sort of thought right. about what we do is, um, you know, a place where we can kind of represent what we think of as sort of the best of the Christian intellectual tradition within the university community context, um, recognizing right. very well that um, what we're doing is a very um, different thing that what that what, what often hears about, um, you know, the Christian church in in mainstream media and and in the united fact, states in today. the united states yeah, certainly exactly. yeah yeah so um <laughs> yeah. yeah trying to to maybe show another way right um right yeah mm-hmm. yeah and i you know i think people might think it, it's an odd institution but as you said um we, we so we have a christian study center here at virginia tech actually and oh uh, that's right the bradley center and it's it, it's an that's right. Yeah. yeah. And so it's this larger tradition. I think, was it started at University of Virginia? Is that one of the earliest ones? Is that That right? is one of the earliest. That's right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so part of it had to do with kind of, re- in, you know, it has to do with kind of Christian intellectual life mm-hmm. um, and re-enlivening that side of the tradition in the context of kind of university spaces. And so, I mean, I kind of wanted to get that, you know, get that out there um, because I think it'll help listeners. I, I wanted to ask, you know, both about what you find useful, but I know just from going on to the, the Study Center website that you've talked about. Uh, you've done things about Illich at yeah. the study center. Mm-hmm. So I also wondered just how, like, you know, the the audiences that you're talking to there are working with around his work, like what's been resonating with them about Illich's work? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I, I think part of what may resonate um, most in this in this context here, I think what Illich is is asking us to consider and he never puts it this way right but but what is what is good for us right as human beings as individuals as communities yep and do the patterns of modern institutional social technological life sustain promote that idea of what mm. we might think of as human flourishing or are they in various ways undermining it, right? And so, you know, I wrote recently yep. on the newsletter um, uh, a, a post about the idea of, of scarcity and desire and wanting and how so much of our society is just premised yes. on, you know, sort of instilling consumer subjectivity, right, in, in all of us, right? So that um, yep. we, we, you know, and then this is in some respects, and, you know, certainly not, you know, original to Illich, but the idea that that uh, you know, I think I put it there. Happiness is always on the other side of more, um, and I think we're, to some degree, mm-hmm. you know, maybe all susceptible to that um, in some way or another. And and you know, Illich's work as a whole challenges that assumption, right? Asks us to consider whether yeah. or not there are ways of of uh, of living that are in fact more satisfying and. Mm. will give us a sense of meaning and purpose, but that will involve what we, from a modern consumerist perspective, might see as as sacrifices in standard of living, right? Um, Or in the GDP growth of a a nation, you know? Um, And, you know, there, I think, for example, I've I've often used the the, the, 
uh, language of burnout or the discussions of burnout as an indication of this, right? So yep. there's a lot of talk about burnout, you know, um, a lot of people writing about it very insightfully. And we're, you know, so the question is, why, why are we burned out? What is, what is driving this, right? At some level, yeah, you know, I think one way of answering this question is just this dynamics of, of modern capitalist society, um, the, the imperatives of, uh, of consumer society. But, you know, how do we, is there any room for us to mm -hmm. even think about relating to a society differently by adjusting our own assumptions about what the good life entails, right? yeah. about, about what is going to make, um, you know, I, I don't know how else to put this except in this very sort of, uh, simple way, what is going to make us happy, right? What is going to make our communities healthy? What yeah. is going to promote um, the kinds of things that we say we want, right? Which is uh, deeper interpersonal relationships, greater degrees of friendship, solidarity. Um, and and so I think, you know, that's one of the things that, that resonates. The sense that, that something has gone wrong, you know, we're all kind of working really hard, uh, you know, there, you know, nobody's quite pleased with the world. We're exhausting ourselves, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the report that got so much attention yesterday about the state of, um, you know, the global climate, we're, we're yeah. taxing the earth's resources at an enormous amount. Um, and, and yeah, maybe we just need to kind of radically rethink all of the core assumptions that are driving us in that direction. Um, and, and this was what mm -hmm. Illich, as I suggested earlier in his later work, um, you know, really worked to understand, right? What, what are these, he called them certainties, things we don't question, things that, you know, mm -hmm. we take for granted, things we just think are the way the world must operate. Um, you know, ideas about the nature of scarcity, for example, you know, became very important to him, um, at this point in his career. Yeah. Um, you know, why we, why we think of, you know, economic life in terms of scarcity, for example, uh, is there an alternative to that? Um, and, and so there, you know, the, and, and I would say also, um, the idea that we can do more for ourselves and maybe we're led to believe, um, and this is not a yep. kind of a, uh, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, sort of modern individualistic ideal, right? It's rather, it's always coupled with interdependence, right? That we become yes. better able to care for ourselves and our families for the sake of our communities, right? For the sake of mutual mm -hmm. aid, for the sake of mutual benefit, um, and I think there are a lot of ways that people on on all you know at all levels of, of society would say that you know our institutions are failing us, and and I think what Illich invites yeah. us to ask is, yes, and maybe that's in part because of the nature of, of these institutions and the way we were talking about earlier, but also maybe there's a way of living that that turns us back towards ourselves in a way that is more fruitful, um, more life-giving, maybe that entails yeah. some, some degree of risk, some, again, sacrifices by certain standards, but that ultimately is better for you, better for your community, better for the environment. Um, I think that's what's resonating right now in, in Illich's work. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I was thinking, too, about... Uh, you know, one one strand of thought that comes out of the same problems that that um, Illich is identifying in the 70s later, mostly in the 80s and 90s, I think, is communitarianism, um, which is this kind of like we've lost track of like, you know, the value of community interaction. And I was just specifically thinking about 
Christian uh, thinkers who took up this kind of line of thought, um, like Stanley Hauerwas and William Willimon's uh, book mm-hmm. *Resident Aliens*, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which viewed um, uh, you know Christianity as a kind of subculture, and that they you know they thought that Christians should actually embrace this kind of subcultural thing. And then you know the more recent kind of version of this, which might be more extreme in some ways, is kind of like Rod Dreher's book, like *The Benedict Option*. Which, you know, Dreher thinks that kind of culture has fallen so far that the only option for Christian communities is kind of withdrawal to like literally kind of create their their own worlds. So I just kind of like wondered if like, you know, given that that is a those are kind of conversations that have been going on with Christian communities. Does do you think like tools for conviviality connects to like that those set of issues for Christian communities? Have you found that within your own community or is it? Is, are those things not even coming up? Um, so I think that there are, again, it's one of those cases where there there may be some overlaps, um, but then other divergences, yep. right? So so I think of, of like yep. Hauerwas, and Hauerwas is working out of the, the Anabaptist tradition. He's a Methodist, but he's, you know, highly, you know, um, uh, influenced by the Anabaptist tradition. And the idea of... Right. Of... Uh, that that the church has been addicted to power. Uh, I think I don't know that Harwas ever puts it quite that way, but that that's part of the problem and yeah, and part yep. of his argument in you know Resident Aliens. I think is that, and it's been mind you about twenty years since I've read the book. So with that in mind, um, it, yeah. is is that you know especially in the American context, um, Christianity became too enamored with its its cultural influence um, and. I think that there is a sense in which that resonates with Illich. Illich, you know, there's a collection of essays uh, that Illich wrote in the 50s and 60s uh, titled, titled The Powerless Church. And, you know, I think there's certainly a sense in which Illich would, uh, Illich's argument and Hauerwas's argument um, would align at certain points with regards to what the church ought to be. It, it, it ought not to be um, mm. a, a an institution that was characterized by the use of power or its power over society, um, but rather was a community um, that, well, a collection of communities, right, in many respects, that um, its primary witness was in its service to neighbor, uh, certainly its testimony Mm -hmm. to the gospel, um, to its modeling of forgiveness and of humility and of, uh, of, you know, the distinctly Christian virtues, um, but th- that it did not aspire to cultural power, I guess would be the the, the, the point there. Yeah. So there's that overlap. Um, with regards to the, the more recent, um, like with Dreher's work, for example, um, I, you know, I, I confess I have not read Benedict Option, but I, I think I know enough about it to you know, sort of comment on it. Yeah. Um, I don't think... I th- yeah, I just I think there's a in, in sensibility and in um, in I don't know in some way even the, the general idea of, of, of the good there is there's a dis uh, you know dis, um, there's a way in which Illich does not sit easily with with that project um, yeah and I'd have to think a little bit more I confess about how to how to put that or how to you know parse that difference but but Illich never is writing about retreat yeah. right uh, or about cultural retreat those just right. aren't his concerns his, you know his concerns are not the loss of you know influence in the church or the way in which 
you know, cultures is, um, actually, I, maybe I'd put it this way, you know, in some respects, I think Dreyer's concerned with the ways in which culture is dominating the church. Illich's uh, fundamental yeah. critique is that, you know, the, the church was a bad influence on culture uh, in, in its right. modeling okay. of, yeah. of institutionalization and the kind of dependence it generated and yeah. created. Um, and so, yeah, in some respects, the, the you know, stretch, if you stretch the timeline out far enough, uh, Illich would say, yeah, no, the, the problem is actually coming from here in the other direction. Um, so, yeah, I think that Illich's relationship to all these thinkers would be, um, you know, complicated. Uh, he, Charles Taylor, yeah. I think Taylor sometimes, I don't know, I don't, I don't think of Taylor yeah. being a communitarian exactly. Some of his early work, I think, is, is you know, maybe um, grouped in, the, in that category sometimes. He gets lumped in there, for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and there are certainly affinities um, between Taylor and Illich uh, in, in a secular age. Towards the end, uh, Taylor, um, you know, relies a lot on, on Illich's distinct critique of, of modernity hmm. as stemming from the corruption of Christian institutions. In fact, Taylor had a lot to do with bringing uh, Rivers North of the Future to press uh, and encouraging Cayley to publish that. Hmm. Um, so, so there are some points of contact there again, um, but I often find that Illich is sort of doing his own thing. <laughs> and, uh, and I, right. I yeah, right. and especially with, with, with Dreyer, I could see people that, that are in that circle reading Illich and, and reading him with profit and saying, oh, yeah, this is helpful and good, and fitting some of Illich's work into their project. But I think the projects taken whole are, aren't nearly as compatible. Yeah. 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 No, that makes a lot of sense to me. I, you know, I don't, like, Illich is, is not a person to peg. He's not that simple. Yeah. But I think, like, yeah. the what I want to do more is just explore his kind of contacts with other yeah, trans yeah, right. of thought because I right. think it's helpful to kind of like situate him. Um, I think I first of all, I just want to tell listeners again to check out your, your newsletter, the Confivial Society, which is on Substack. And um, you've written a lot of neat pieces. And I want to make clear that like you, you're kind of tackling uh, issues around technology with your own voice with a by drawing on a bunch of thinkers. You know, Illich is one of the central ones, but you're really bringing a, a lot of different uh, thinkers to, to bear. But it's just to kind of give listeners a flavor, I thought we might talk about one or two of them. So uh, you had this neat piece, The Skill of Hospitality. Um, and so I thought we could talk about, you know, friendship, in the kind of the ideal of friendship as a kind of face-to-face -face encounter mm -hmm. um, in that. And, you know, how it helps us think about things like social media and Zoom calls like the one we're on now and... <laughs> And stuff right. like that. So, how, I mean, like, how do you even thinking about these issues, and how do you find Illich helpful for thinking about them? Illich got really interested in the place of the body um, late, again in that in that last phase mm -hmm. of his career. Um, you know, he the body and, and the senses, and um, and the way that it can relate to the world and to others, and to and and its scale, its fittingness. Um, you know, with yep with with the, the world conceived and ordered in a certain way but then the way that the body gets lost or displaced uh, or abstracted um in in many yeah. of the given many of the dynamics of, of, of modern life so he he prized the face-to-face -face encounter uh, you know that is undoubtedly the case um 
you know, in that in that piece, the skill of hospitality, um, you know, I draw actually on an interview uh, that he gave on Jerry Brown's old radio show in California. Um, Brown is one of yeah. these interesting figures who uh, was was taken by Illich and was influenced by Illich. Um, I, if, if readers go onto the archive of the, of the newsletter, they'll find an interview I did with Jerry Brown about, um, I don't know, about seven, eight months ago, huh. where he talks about Illich. Um, and anyway, he, um, in that interview, so he comes on the show with Carl Mitchum, uh, philosopher of technology, who is, um, you know, a longtime colleague and friend of Illich's and they both go on the show and, and, and he, he says, you know, I'm, I'm glad to do this, but I, yeah, I don't like it exactly. Right. You know, I, and he says, I, I can't yeah. see your, um, I can't see myself in your eye. Um, and he, he, he was in, in this, on this point, right, that comes out of, um, you know, his reading of Levinas and, and the power of the face and, yeah. and how we receive ourselves as a gift from the other in that face-to-face encounter. Mm. Um, and so I, I do think that he thought that, you know, our, the fullness of our embodied presence was critically important um, and that many of our tools and our technologies, and, and again, he's, he, he dies in 2002, so he's certainly... You know, yeah. several years into not talking about Facebook, we're not talking yeah. about Facebook, right? Or, uh, you know, or certainly Zoom. <laughs> um, but um, but he he was, I think, already concerned with the ways in which, uh, even in, in sort of the early internet context, um, you know, the body is is displaced mm-hmm. from from human interaction. Um, obviously, he goes on the show. You know, it's not as if he he thinks we should ban these things or these interactions, right? Um, right. But but that. We, we, I would say perhaps that we needed to work to retain the, the face-to-face encounter uh, as sort of fundamental to human relationships. And I think he also there, yeah. you, know, um, he, he, you know, as he thinks about the, the problems for plaguing modern society, um, in some respects, he, he proposes this so, so hospitality as a kind of solution, which on, on some level, you know, I think I say in that piece, on some level seems wholly inadequate, right? Wholly inadequate to the scale <laughs> yeah, of the problems right. we're dealing with. Um, and, and yet, you know, if I think about it, I think I guess the question is how deep are the problems in fact and how, you know, where do we need to begin rebuilding? Um, you know, at, at, yeah. and, and maybe the problems are in fact so deep so pronounced that we have to begin rebuilding at this extremely fundamental and simple level that won't give us mm. the immediate outcomes we desire, but will lay a foundation for us to build on, uh, you know, that, that, you know, may come to fruition in a hundred or 200 years. You know, I, I thinking at those scales, I think is mm-hmm. useful uh, because we're always so interested in the yeah. immediate fix. And of course, a lot of problems need an immediate fix. Uh, but, you know, sure. the idea that people will come together in in a very you know he, he this was his own practice you know he he talked about his time in Penn State um, you know he taught at Penn State and he thought of it as as milking the sacred cow as a way of sustaining what he really wanted to do was to have these small gatherings with his his you know friends and colleagues and scholars uh, that would happen in a living room uh, or you know around meals where there was a a free exchange of ideas and, and interaction and debate and dialogue. Um, and, and a mutual trust, which I think was critical for him. You know, and as I think about yeah. the lack of trust that flourishes on social media and how much of that drives you know, the, the disorders of social media where bad faith is presumed and, and mm. often rightfully so, um, and we 
um, we, we don't have a sphere for the pursuit of truth, Illich would put it this way, right? So truth, in his view, in this context, can be pursued only in these, you know, these small gatherings where friendship and trust can flourish, and that this might be the beginnings of a renewal that might make political life possible again. You know, I, you know, he, yep. he thinks that you know, friendship in the classical conception of it was sort of the root of polit, uh, you know, or, or friendship was the outgrowth of politics. And, and I think he thinks we need to invert that in the present where we need to recover friendship in order to build up uh, a healthy political sphere. So, yeah, those are, um, you know, all mm-hmm. interesting perspectives to consider. They're all provocations for thought. You know, I don't I obviously don't encourage anyone to sort of take yeah. his word for anything. Uh, but I think he provokes us in very right. helpful and useful ways, right? Illich wouldn't want you to take his word, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, for anything no. in that way. I don't think he's yeah. asking that kind of unquestioning relationship. No, um, no. Of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I think it's one of the things I was thinking about while reading your piece on hospitality was just, you know, the fantasy uh, that's been with us for you know, well, for a long time, if we think way back around education technology mm-hmm. and especially around distance learning and MOOCs. Right. Um, and, you know, the idea that we're just going to be connected to our computers. And then, you know, we go through the COVID experience where we have this, ma- you know, can think of as a massive experiment in distance learning. Mm-hmm. And what are people trying to do? They're trying to get back in person mm-hmm. as quickly as possible, yeah. maybe in, in some cases too quickly. But I mean, like yeah. the desire is clearly there. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. right. I mean, it's, and it's so it's it's so amazing that like people just kind of, I think, recognize that this in-person relationship is absolutely essential when it comes to education and teaching. Um, and, you know, I, I just think it really stands out. So um, he and others who are kind of emphasizing this side seem kind of prophetic now, I think. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Maybe another. Oh, go ahead. No, yeah. no, no, that was all just, just I, say, another yeah. piece I wanted to ask you about is um, uh, related, I think, is your attention is not a resource this is another post you wrote, mm-hmm. um, which is about kind of the way people talk about attention uh, now. And it's particularly around social media and such, but not exclusively, of course. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, how do you find Illich helpful around around these this topic of attention? Yeah, that so that that's one of those pieces where I found myself, um, you know, I'm often thinking out loud uh, and, and uh, the idea yeah. comes together as I write, write and, and sort of throw it out into the world to see what people think. And I think that was one of those places where I was really kind of testing the application of an idea to a certain context. And and so, you know, Illich became very critical of what we might sort of think of just the commodification of everything, right? The the way in which yep. economic imperatives came to dominate all of the ways that we think about human relation, all the spheres or tasks or roles that we yep. that we undertake. Um, he wanted to carve out a, a realm for what he decided to call the vernacular, um, which is what people can do for mm. themselves, where market relations aren't really in play, um, and and so and and the idea that you know when when something becomes a resource, we immediately think of it in terms of the language of scarcity, um, and and then it becomes um, subject to economic rationality. I think that's sort of the, the logic in Illich's you know, mm-hmm. work. Um, and so thinking about attention in this way, you know, it, it, it struck me, you know, we've been talking about attention, certainly in the digital context for a long time, um, but we often right. think of it again as a, as a scarce resource. Um, and and it, to me, it, it, it also, and it was also the other thing in that 
that began there, but I finished out elsewhere, was the idea that we detach it from the body. So it just becomes this abstract commodity yeah. that we possess a certain amount of and that we need to pay or lose or waste. And so all yeah. these, you know, words that we think about it. What, what I wanted to do there is sort of ask, what happens if we, if we don't think about it as a scarce resource, right? And, and so what I propose, mm. you know, readers do is sort of imagine for a moment that, that we have all of the attention we need, right? And, and that, but that, if, that is the case if at any given moment I know what it is good for me to do, right? And so there is this mm. sense in which mm. I feel we're all sort of pressed to do. We feel like we don't have enough attention because we feel like there are so many things that we need to do or ought to do keeping up with my feed, right? You know, yeah. I have X number of, you know, I have a, a thousand tabs opened, right? Or whatever the case may be. These are all these things I feel right, right, in right. my attention, right? Um, and and maybe yeah. the answer is to say, no, the, there, there, are, there are certain things that are good for me to do. I'm not unlimited, right? And and so yeah. I I need to think again about what it is good for me to attend to. And if in any given moment yep. I'm thinking on those terms, along those lines, then I think I can experience my attention not as a scarce resource that I'm you know, anxious about losing or having to, 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 to manage, but rather as a kind of gift, right? I, and I'm, so I'm, uh, I have a, two young daughters and I often think about this in the context yes. of how, uh, you know, especially when, you know, the, the work from home period, right? You know, and, and how yep. I can frame their presence in my life as a competition for the scarce resource of my attention. But if I put mm. it that way, I immediately mm. realize that's a, that's a disordered way of thinking about it, right? The, the question, <laughs> yeah, right. The, yeah. you know, the question is rather, what is it good for me to attend to at this moment? And if I, if I think about it that way, yeah. and this is not to say that, it, it, you know, the answer is always to attend to my children, right? Um, because there are real responsibilities, yeah, sure. right? That, um, but that, mm -hmm. it, you know, I can... And they need to attend to themselves sometimes, too. Exactly, exactly, <laughs> right, precisely. But that, that that's a different way of framing the situation. And, and I may decide that the right thing, the good thing for me to do in this moment, at this time, is to attend to them. Yeah. But not because, not, not as a draw or a, a, a wasting of this resource of attention, but because that is what my attention is for, right? That it is for them in yep. that moment, right? Um, and so I, you know, I've, I've yeah. found it useful to think along those lines. Um, and, you know, I don't know, others may or may not, but, but that's, that's kind of the idea, the experiment that underlay uh, that, that piece. Mm -hmm. yeah. I enjoyed it. I mean, I think uh, this is not a comparison, but it just reminded me that I feel like an other thinker, there's been other thinkers that people have been rediscovering in the last few years who t kind of think about the morality of attention yeah. with Simone Weil and, and yeah. Iris Murdoch being right. two who get written about pretty often. Mm -hmm. um, this is a question I actually try not to ask, um, but in this case, I think I better, which is, <laughs> um, are there any important dimensions or threads of Illich's uh, thinking that you think we would be like, uh, seriously uh, in trouble not to mention that we haven't touched on yet? That is a good question. Up, you know, if you had asked me that about 10 minutes ago or five minutes ago, I would have said this, this idea of the vernacular of, of the, you know, the dominance of economic rationality, the, you know, the idea of, of, of not yeah. conceiving of everything as a resource. Illich has this, um, you know, recurring 
emphasis on the commons. Um, and in fact, mm. I, I think I'm actually getting ready to, to write a little bit about this. Um, so he has this very interesting piece that was recently actually brought to my attention um, on, uh, I think it's titled something like hair, as in literally the, you know, the yeah, hair on our body and, and the city. Uh, and I, I won't kind of go huh. through the very Elitchian way that he approaches this problem, but it's, it boils down to a question of the commons. And he, he distinguishes mm -hmm. between the commons and both the private and the public. And, and I think that that's useful. Because I think a lot of times, you know, I may be tempted to think of the commons as being more or less synonymous with the public, you know, public spaces, public, you know, resources. But he distinguishes those, um, you know, in, you know, the, the, the private, I think we have a you know, way of conceptualizing, um, you know, the public, he said, the public realm, as it's usually spoken of, is already also a realm of rules and regulations, right? You know, obviously, the, you know, the governmental institutions will have a long, um, will have a, a heavy um, role in defining what is public, what is public land, what is public use, what is a public utility, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but he contrasts that to the old idea of the commons. He gives the example of uh, of the tree, of a tree in a commons, in you know, in, in a traditional village setting or whatever. And he says everybody makes, you know, kind of is free to make use of it for a variety of different purposes. He lists a lot of different ways in which that tree might be used by different members of the community. Nobody owns it, but neither is any public entity regulating it, right? In other words, the the mm -hmm. commons is sort of an ad hoc arrangement where people have through maybe custom and tradition and negotiation and, 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 and you know, um, a, a mutual rep reciprocity figured out how to make use of this, of this tool in ways that allow yeah. maximal freedom for all of the different people who, who need it and will make use of it. Um, and then I think about something like, you know, the commons of speech, and, and he you know, has an essay on the commons of speech, but how our, our talk about something like social media you know, uh, and and the public sphere, and our problems with it often come out of the sense that we we don't know how to regulate it. We don't know how to make it work productively. You know, we're concerned about you know whether it's private platforms and private speech with public consequences, and we're applying all these categories. And maybe the issue is that we it's not a commons in the sense that again people aren't present to one another in a way that. The you know a, a a similar sort of ad hoc negotiation of rights and privileges and responsibilities can be worked out uh, in a manner that is, that is yeah. sort of conducive to its its good use. Um, so that that's an interesting strand. And it's yeah. Go ahead. And I'd like to he thinks uh, I mean he's he's not a tragedy of the commons person. He isn't so cynical about kind of human no. being and anthropology that he thinks we're automatically going to screw up the commons, right? I mean, he has a different vision of what humans are like. Yes, I think that's, that's absolutely right. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, it's certainly the, the possibility that we'd screw it up is there, um, you know, and he, so he's not an idealist, right. utopian, right? <laughs> uh, but I think yeah. he, he, he would say that, that, that people actually are a lot more capable and, and this is his whole thing in some respects, right? People are capable, right? There are there are countless ways in which people took mm. care of themselves, um, and and did so in in humane and responsible ways um, that they have lost the capacity to do because those roles and tasks and skills have been outsourced to institutions, to professionals. Yep. Um, 
I don't know. I'll, I'll mention this example because it was so poignant in some respects. I, you know, you mentioned I taught Illich here in this context. I was, I was teaching Illich, and there was a postdoc um, in the class who worked in a lab, um, and a colleague mm. uh, at, in the lab passed away very suddenly, very unexpectedly, right in the in their, you know, in their common space in their office. And so he he tells me that, wow. that you know yeah it was very obviously very traumatic, um, and he tells me that then you know a handful of of he and his colleagues gathered together and, and were essentially just sort of talking through what had happened, and one of the people in that group um, you know essentially said well maybe maybe we shouldn't be doing this maybe we need to wait for you know the the counselor to arrive right so they you know they were going to have some professional oh counselor God. on site. Right, and yeah. and and that to me um, mm. was such a poignant example of, of what worried Illich. Right, that he would say, "Yeah, we have a capacity to care for one another, to 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 sustain one another in the midst of loss and and and, and tragedy in this way." And he, and here was someone, you know, and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to come across as being sort of judgmental, right? But that this is symptomatic, right? There was someone yeah. who, who didn't think that they ought to be trying to care for themselves in that moment, in that way, until a certain Or that they profession. could be trusted, or right. that others could be trusted. Right, right, right. right. Uh, you have that. to have credentials in order yes. to be trusted to do, do that kind of work. Exactly, exactly, right. And, and that, that, I think, is one of the best sort of real-world anecdotes that illustrates so much of what Illich was yep. concerned with in the 60s and 70s. So, so right, no, I think he, he, he wants to say, you know, you, you have these capacities and and it's not that professionals don't have their place it's not that experts don't have their place but he feels that again they, they've crossed mm. the threshold in many respects where they have um undermined some rather than assisting and sustaining and supporting and encouraging the development of these skills they have led to the atrophy of these skills in in individuals and so yes you're i mean you're right he would say no we we, we can do more than we think and we can be trusted in more ways than we think mm-hmm. um and, and he yeah. wants to see more of that i think yeah michael i think that's a wonderful place to to kind of let yeah. things land i want to thank you so much for your time today and for you know taking the time to talk to me and yeah, yeah. it was a so pleasure much. yeah thank you so much Lee. these are great questions and i really enjoyed it I hope you enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Peoples and things like most things in this world depends on the work of many people. I want to thank my brother Jake Vinsel for writing the music for the show. I want to thank my buddy Juliana Castro for designing the logos for the podcast. You can check out our work at julianacastro.co. Peoples and Things is a production of Virginia Tech Publishing and the University Libraries at Virginia Tech. Production activities are supported by the Athenaeum, a space in the library that acts as a hub for digital humanities teaching, learning, and creation. Joe Ford is the Athenaeum Coordinator and Digital Humanities Specialist at VT Libraries, and he serves as producer and sound engineer for the podcast. For information about other podcasts from Virginia Tech Publishing, visit publishing.vt.edu. I also want to thank you for listening. Thanks.